This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Bud Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to our program. This is Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. With us today to discuss the Town of Amherst's decision to explore reparative justice by creating the African Heritage Reparation Assembly is District 1 Town Councilor Michelle Miller. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You know, tomorrow begins uh, African American History Month, and I think the city of Springfield is going to usher in the month with a ceremony on the front steps of City Hall Michelle, I understand that ceremony is going to begin with a recognition of a friend and colleague of yours. That's right, Buzz. My friend and colleague, Dr. Amakar Shabazz, is being honored by the city of Springfield with the Ruth B. Love Award. Ruth Love arrived in Springfield in 1940 and was known as the mother of the civil rights movement in the city. State Rep. Bob Williams said it right when he referred to Dr. Shabazz as a brilliant advocate and fighter for social justice in our community of color and for students in our schools and universities throughout the state. It's an honor and pleasure to serve on this assembly with Dr. Shabazz, and I can't think of anyone more deserving to receive this distinguished award. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Amokar, thank, uh, congratulations for that honor. It's Ruth, is it Ruth Love or Ruth Loving? Loving. It's Loving. Ruth Loving. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, so... Who, which of you can tell us a little bit, just give us an introduction to what's happening with respect to reparations in Amherst. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, we're on quite a journey. Um, so we have the uh, African Heritage Reparation Assembly. We've been up and running now for over a year. Um, right now we're in the process of consulting with our community. So we are hosting listening sessions. We're getting out into the community to educate folks about reparations. Our town has committed to a $2 million fund over 10 years. And so in this, uh, at this point right now, we're um, wanting to hear the voices of the people in our community, of African heritage residents in our community, um, so that we can uh, propose a, a, a an inclusive plan and a robust plan um, for the Amherst community. Maybe Dr. Shabazz wants to add some to that. Well, just to say the AHRA, or African Heritage Reparations Assembly, is a seven-member body. It was uh, appointed by uh, the town manager and the council of, um, uh, and it uh, six of the members are from the uh, African heritage community. Um, and uh, uh, we are um, charged with producing a report for this June, and um, uh, the listening sessions are part of it. But we also have um, a lot of a lot of other work to go between now and June. So, uh, Dr. Amakar Shabazz, you have spent uh, your entire career, your scholarship, uh, your activism, um, arguing for reparation yes. and the importance of reparations in order to, as a remedial. Uh, way of, uh, in a tiny way, making up for the horrors of slavery and the descendants of slaves. Uh, how hopeful are you that this is happening in Amherst? Well, I, I was inspired on, on this path in 1980 after hearing a, a speech uh, by a woman we refer to as Queen Mother Moore. Her name is Audley Moore. She was from the same uh, place that my uh, maternal grandfather was uh, was born and uh, escaped from a place called New Iberia, Louisiana. And um, the hopefulness I have about it stems a lot from her life of courage, 
and many others who, uh, when fewer people than now <laughs> were giving any, any uh, consideration of this idea, they persevered and they continued to push. So I, I stand on their shoulders and um, I'm, I'm uh, encouraged to see the uh, uh, people who are listening now and who are eager to try to do something along these lines. And Bill, uh, uh, the same in Northampton, there's a similar effort uh, involving Which I'm sure both of our guests know about. So one of you, talk, tell us about Northampton, which is moving right along. There, was a th there were some 300 people at, on the Zoom call this past week, Zoom call, the presentation was titled, uh, why, why Reparations? Why Northampton? Why Now? And all three of those questions were answered. Yes, it was quite astounding. I heard more than once that evening I attended the event and uh, about how small the population, the African heritage, the black population of Northampton is smaller than Amherst. And I just have to say, this is an area in which we are in a kind of a unique position to, um, to be a little bit of a, of a beacon uh, to what can happen in smaller communities, in places in New England and elsewhere. Uh, across this country where the African heritage population is very tiny, to, to nonetheless look at how reparative justice can change the discourse, can change the narrative, and can produce some policy ideas that perhaps we haven't given thought to before. So the Northampton Reparations Commission has come together around this. Um, two members of the African heritage community spoke that night that were, uh, were really brilliant. Um, Dr. Usman Power Green got his PhD in my department, the W.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies, and uh, he spoke um, especially brilliantly on a lot of the history and historical dimensions of um, the impact of slavery in this area. And yes, there was resistance. There was a vibrant underground railroad presence, and people like David Ruggles and Sojourner Truth and others were, were able to find some refuge here, but it doesn't change the fact of the overall relationship that we here in New England and elsewhere had to the institution of slavery. In Amherst, we look at Amherst College, some of its early founding board of trustees members like Israel Trask were uh, beneficiaries of enslaved labor in Mississippi. Uh, we even know some of their descendants of uh, today of people who were enslaved by Amherst College uh, trustee member Israel Trask. So, there's a lot to this, and, uh, and it's good to see Northampton moving on that road, too. Uh, Professor Amakar Shabazz, I'd be interested to know, because you are a historian and a professor of uh, Africana Studies as well at UMass, the W. Du Bois uh, Department, I, I would I'd like to know whether or not there is a history here that goes unreported. And it seems to me the answer to that is yes, so maybe you could tell us a bit about what that is. Sure. Um, or a bit more, because yeah. we're, we're telling us about the Amherst trustees. Near sure. We talk about this 1619 date, and we should realize that soon after that development in Virginia, um, you have Plymouth Rock, you have folks coming in, and no sooner than um, they come in, uh, was they move into this area of what, what we now call Western Mass, uh, particularly William Pynchon, the Pynchon family, um, as they had indigenous captives from King Philip's War and other conflicts, they couldn't keep them around here. These folks knew the terrain too well. It would continue to be problems for them. So they, so they would take them to the Caribbean to, uh, and trade them with uh, slave uh, owners and slave traders 
in the Caribbean and then bring Africans back up. So we have a presence of African people in this area from like the 1640s, 1650s, out here in Western Mass. So that will go on right until the latter part of the 1700s when the institution of slavery begins to, to phase out and, and is um, uh, overturned in the law. Um, and so we, we have that, that sort of um, unreported story of not only the presence of enslaved people in this area, which my uh, good friend and uh, colleague Bob Romer has done so well uh, about this area and his book, um, and, uh, but also the relationship of peoples and the, the, the intertwined nature of wealth formation, of the textile mills, of other kinds of uh, businesses uh, that were inextricably related to the slave trade, to slave plantations in the south of the United States and in the Caribbean. It's all an intricate web of, uh, of, of wealth building on the backs of enslaved African people. In part because the cotton is grown in the south, but the mills in the north uh, refine it and turn it into cloth. Um, and same was true, I understand it, from, with regard to the peanut industry. And it goes on and on and on. There's an interconnected wealth building that is based on slavery, and the North is intricately involved in that. And our oldest university is at the heart of it, in Harvard University, which has begun a process of reckoning and looking at the ways in which they uh, were built by slavery and, and related to slavery. I wanted to ask you, Town Councilor Michelle Miller, uh, a member of the... Uh, um, the uh, assembly, the African Heritage Reparation Assembly, which has been going on for a while, you, your discussions have been going on for a while. Is there still resistance that, in part of your discussions, part of your analysis, to the notion of reparation? And my second part is, and what form will reparations take? Have you gotten there yet? Really good questions. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't say resistance, um, but I think there's definitely um, some curiosity about the questions that you're asking, who will be eligible, what form of reparations take. Um, I think what we're hoping to do in the next months as we're developing this report is to really um, get out into the community here. There are certainly different perspectives. Um, we have perspectives coming in from folks that are outside of the community that are invested in reparations, uh, both at the local, state, and federal levels. Um, so what we're going through a process here, and I think that the questions that are being asked are more related to how will the funding be used, how should the funding be used, um, should it be cash payments versus community benefits and anything in between those? Um, there are lots of ways um, that, that uh, this may take shape. And so it will be interesting to see how, how, it, how it goes over the next several months. Um, one, oh, okay, go ahead, sorry. No, please, <laughs> yeah. I'm learning. Okay, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I think we're getting into the meat of our work. Um, so establishing the fund, getting the commitment from the town, all of those things have been um, really important pieces and foundational to what we're doing. But now we're getting into really the meat of the conversation that's not only happening here in Amherst, but um, in in the state and, and federal levels. And, and so, yeah. Dr. Shabazz, do you, do you have an opinion 
um, of what form compensation or reparations should take. Yeah, yeah, I do, but it, it doesn't matter much. <laughs> no, it's really a process. And uh, so like the parts of our report that I think we're, we're, we're moving toward is first of all, a section on what are the harms and the history of harms. Another section is who, who, who is owed? Who is owed? And another is um, what is owed? In what forms? How would, would, this, um, would, would the harms be addressed? And so um, I, one of the things we've talked about, and Mich I love Michelle's language about concentric circles, is that you know, at the core, the, the harms and the history of harms we're trying to address are those that were generated through um, institutionalized racism in the form of uh, forced labor, the slavery uh, that occurred, uh, followed by the Jim Crow and, and, and other forms of racial oppression. And so that's at this core of the circle. But we have an expansive idea where we also are looking at other aspects broadening out in terms of ways in which this repair process can, can benefit uh, um, more and more throughout, throughout society. So um, it's, uh, I, I think there certainly can be a time, and we've heard at our listening sessions, about times when families or folks uh, in our community have, uh, have fallen on real hard times, a place that they could go where they could receive uh, some direct support. Um, uh, and, uh, and of course, there are other things that already exist, but this might be additive or this might be from a different vantage point than, say, the survival center or other things that mm. might exist. Uh, so there could be a place where direct cash benefits could, could help someone keeping their home from going into foreclosure, uh, keeping their, um, their, their family alive in a certain situation. So I don't rule it out completely, but I think we are, particularly here locally and with the constraints of how much money is available to us for this kind of work, we are looking at, at other kinds of uh, uh, um, things that can be done that can benefit the, the, the people we're targeting. In, in, in the minute that we have left before we take a break, um, uh, Councillor Michelle Miller, how... If people want to find out about it, if listeners want to learn more about what's happening in Amherst and in the Assembly, how do they find out? The town of Amherst has a page for the African Heritage Reparation Assembly, and um, there is also an Engage Amherst page, so Engage Amherst backslash A-H-R-A. Um, those are two places that you could find information about our meetings. Um, all our minutes. All of our minutes, reports, uh, and how to get involved, most importantly, um, right now, that's that. That's what we're really hoping for: is to um, get the community engaged in this process. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation uh, with the once again to be recognized, <laughs> Dr. Amakar Shabazz and Town Councilor Michelle Miller, and we're going to be talking more about the assembly that's created in Amherst by Amherst in order to pursue reparations. We'll be right back after these messages. Do stay with us. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 101.5, 1400, and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, former college athlete and now arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. I'm proud to be one of the board-certified team of doctors who's ready to tackle any orthopedic or sports injury, from shoulders and elbows to knees and ankles and everything in between. With convenient locations in Springfield, East Longmeadow, and Northampton, you can trust we'll give you the best bona fide care. So visit anyortho.com to schedule your appointment today, because at New England Orthopedic Surgeons, we help get you back in the game. Sundays at Gateway City Arts. Bazaar, brunch, and programming. Something wonderful every weekend on the Canal in Holyoke. Shop for collectibles, vintage and used clothing, vinyl records, and much more at the Ray Street Bazaar from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Followed by the Human Error Publishing Poetry event on February 5th. And starting this week, Gateway brings back their Sunday brunch at Judd's Restaurant. Check out the upcoming schedule at gatewaycityarts.com and plan your Sundays at Gateway. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a pot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. E hablamos español. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back discussing Amherst African Heritage Reparation Assembly with Town Councilor Michelle Miller and with Dr. Amilcar uh, Shabazz. So, um, Bill, you had a question before the break. I did. I had a remedial question. Why is it called an assembly? What's an assembly? I'll give you the quick story on that. So, when Michelle Miller, Matt, and Corrine Andrews, you know, led this petition drive and formed reparations for Amherst and got the, the town to um, uh, move forward with a resolution against in, about ending structural racism in Amherst and, and, and working to help uh, just, um, repair relations with the African heritage community, the talk became, okay, so with nice resolution, nice petition, nice resolution, where do we go from here? And um, as uh, um, we generally in Amherst form committees, um, within the black community, as we began meeting, um, we called ourselves the Black Assembly of, Am of Amherst, Massachusetts, and started talking about this and recommending, well, you need some type of uh, assembling of the people around this issue of reparations so form, form a, uh, an assembly around it uh, through the town. And that's where it became the African Heritage Reparations Assembly. You know, the Constitution doesn't acknowledge the right to people to organize committees or the rights of government to create committees, right? Well, I'm here with the lawyers, the constitutional law. It recognizes our, the right of people to assemble and to petition the government and to assemble around issues that, that, that are of concern to them. 
So we thought, one, we'd kind of invoke that idea of the right of people to assemble on what we understand is a controversial word, is a controversial question, or has been. Well, I don't know if it's controversial. I think it's evocative. I think it has resonance. Uh And I, I guess... I prefer it to committee. The tiny, (laughs) big time committee. Functionally, it will be a committee, but what it stands for is something bigger, larger, more important. I think. Let me ask you one other question. This is really to, uh, well, it's to both of you. But let me pose it first to Town Councilor Michelle Miller as a elected official and leader uh, in your community. I am fascinated by the process. And I'm wondering whether or not you think the discussion, the assembly itself, the involving of people throughout the town and the community in this is apt to have a, an effect in addition to whatever concrete proposals come out, but something that will change attitudes, feelings, and perspectives in the town itself. I do. I do. I think that there is a process of truth and reconciliation Um, that is occurring as we have these listening sessions, as we are hearing from residents in the community. I think one of the things I can say um, as a a white person living in Amherst is how how, um, little I knew about the uh, experience of being black and living in Amherst until these listening sessions until uh, we began really um, making space for these conversations to occur. And these conversations have been occurring in Amherst um, for, for quite some time, but now they're sort of been given a platform through this reparatory process. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I absolutely feel that this will not only hopefully lead to concrete uh, solutions and concrete plans for our African heritage community, but also will provide um, healing as we move through the process. I want to ask you, Professor Shabazz, um, tomorrow begins African American History Month. You are a professor in the W.E.B. Du Bois uh, Department of Afro-American Studies at the university. But is this going, the drive for reparations by so many, going to be part of what students experience at the University of Massachusetts when they think about race? Well, I certainly uh, hope so. I just had a class on reparations, uh, black reparations uh, last semester. I'm finding a lot of students are are becoming increasingly interested in this as kind of an extension beyond the sort of civil rights history and uh, and even black power era history that, that we that we read about and teach about and and trying to look at the the long black freedom struggle in the framework of of reparations. You know, if you ever listen closely to a lot of the speeches and things Dr. Martin Luther King would talk about, and it, it, it's, it's repair, it's reparations he's asking for, even as much as the, um, the speech in Washington talking about we come now to the bank of justice and we refuse to believe that it's, that, that you know, the check is gonna bounce and come back insufficient funds. You know, we, we're, we're here for our check. I mean, there, there's so many instances in Dr. King's own work where he's asking the country to come together around a conversation of how do we repair the harms that have been done to African Americans. And again, this isn't as a handout. This isn't as, um, you know, preferential treatment. This is about 
paying us back for a harm. It's remedial. It's it's compensatory. That's I it. guess my last question before we take a break is is right now as what I am so heartened that this is happening in Amherst and and Northampton for all the reasons you two just spoke about. But I'm I'm interested in speaking with you about what's happening. The governors of Texas and Florida and the legislatures thereof, we see this movement to ban discussions of race. We're in reverse. What do you think about that? What do you think we're seeing here? Somebody said the road to the White House uh, for certain members of the Republican Party is through the swamp of white supremacy. They're, Mm. they're, They're charting a path to the White House in 2024 through the swamp of white supremacy. And we certainly see a lot of things going, unfortunately, in that direction, such as DeSantis's banning of, an, uh, of, of the piloting of an advanced placement course on African-American history, African-American studies in the schools of Florida. This is a pilot. Criminalizing. And he's saying, no way. You know, so it's it, unfortunately that there is a little retrograde step. You know, when you start advancing in some directions in the community, particularly in, um, in terms of white attitudes, there's some there, there's going to rise back a, a, a backlash or a pushback. So we ex, we, we expect that and we're going to keep working harder. Well, let, let me, go ahead, let me just say this. Yeah. Since you have invoked Dr. King, his famous reframing of that famous statement was that the arc of history bends towards justice. Right. He didn't say it was a straight road. Yeah, that's right. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Well, we're very grateful for the work you're doing in Amherst and that that, um, uh, the assembly is proceeding. Um, I want to thank you so much, um, Town Councilor Michelle Miller and Dr. Amalkar Shabazz. Enjoy tomorrow when you get the recognition (laughs) that you so deserve um, in celebrating black American heritage with the 37th annual flag raising ceremony. An honor to you, Dr. Shabazz. A lot of great shoulders we stand on, right? Mm. Yeah, but you, we stand on yours. Congratulations. Uh, right. We get a better perspective when we stand on yours. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with Jackie Walsh. Um, she has a really interesting uh, theatrical guest, Peter Evangelista and Sarah Linares from Native Gardens, which will be playing at the Majestic Theater. We'll be back with Jackie right after these messages. Stay with us. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera does not plan to sign an ordinance recently passed by the city council that would limit the number of cannabis dispensaries in town. Earlier this month, the city council capped the number of pot shops to 12 with exemptions made for social equity candidates historically harmed by the war on drugs. Just because the mayor has indicated she will not sign the ordinance does not mean it won't pass, however. If she does not veto the ordinance by this Thursday, the limit, the first of its kind in Western Mass, will automatically become law in Northampton. 
A local nonprofit is raising money to help veterans in need of fuel assistance. The Warming Hearts Program of the United Way of Pioneer Valley has launched to collect donations to help veterans and surviving spouses with fuel assistance. To donate, visit uwpv.org donate. Jason Newmark, chair of the UWPV board, says during these trying times of skyrocketing fuel costs, UWPV wants to provide for the men and women who served our country who may just need a little help to get through the winter. Longmeadow police are investigating a robbery that took place at a Berkshire Bank location Monday morning. Nobody was injured in the two minutes it took the alleged robber to enter the bank location, present the teller with a handwritten note demanding money, and leave in a Honda CRV. Longmeadow and state police are asking for the public's help in identifying the bank robber and encourage anyone with information about who could have done this to contact local authorities. Becoming mostly sunny today, breezy and cool with a high of 30 to 34. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 20s, overnight lows in the teens, and a partly to mostly sunny day tomorrow, 28 to 34. Much colder for the end of the week. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this is Buzz. We are uh, back and we have Playbill with Jackie Walsh, where we learn what's happening in theater in the region. Theater. So, Jackie, what is happening in the theater? Uh, a lot. It's it's uh, cranking up. We had basically just auditions for a few weeks, but now there are actual shows, but lots of auditions, too. And unfortunately, Little Mermaid is over. They had 570 people at their matinees. They sold out. 
We were so sorry we couldn't go. We went to Brooklyn, and I, I really wanted to see it. I heard yeah. the costumes were unbelievable. Was, I just would encourage anyone with children who might have any sort of inkling to do in theater to do next year's show. It's always in January, and it's just an extravaganza. With Everything's great, and the kids have a great time. And where is it? Um, it is at the Bowker Auditorium at UMass. And I think like 400 people end up being involved. It's really cool. Very and the cool. quality of the shows are really good. So that's over. I'm sorry to say. But we have Native Gardens continuing at the Majestic Theater through February 12th. It's a contemporary comedy about next-door neighbors who are clashing over the types of gardens they have. And later, we will be talking to two actors from that show. But I just wanted to mention a couple other things. Auditions for Dancing at Lunasa, which I have to admit I am producing, are happening this weekend. It will be a show in Shelburne Falls. The auditions are Saturday and Sunday, 3.30 to 5.30 at the Arms Library in Shelburne Falls. We need five women and three men between the ages of 30-ish and 60-ish. Um, there's also auditions for a Shakespeare show. We don't see that much Shakespeare around here. Twelfth Night. It'll be at the Academy of Music. Those are a little farther from now in early February. And Shakespeare Stage is putting on the show at the Academy of Music. So just go on their website to find out more. There's auditions for the Minutes at GCC, which happen Monday, February 6th, Tuesday, February 7th at 3.30. It's a scathing new comedy about small town politics and real world power written by Tracy Letts, who did August Osage County. So probably a lot of bitterness and screaming <laughs> in the play, or maybe not. Um, there's an actual show happening, Once Upon a Mattress, PVPA, the Performing Arts Charter School is putting it on in South Hadley, Friday, February 3rd at 7, Saturday, February 4th at 7, and a matinee on Sunday. It's a musical spin on The Princess and the Pea. I've never seen it, but I've heard good things. There's also UMass auditions for Into the Woods, February 12th, 13th, and 14th. That plays happening in late April, early May. We have Romeo and Juliet, which will be at um, Shakespeare and Company for just one day. Fairly cheap tickets that start at $15. Um, it's the Saturday before Valentine's Day, the 11th at 7 p.m. Barrington Stage does this 10 by 10 new play festival every January and um, that's happening February seventeenth through the through the fifth. Um, and that's kind of about it. Um, yes, so we have today two actors. I love interviewing actors on the show from Native Gardens, which is at the Majestic Theater through February twelfth. They are Sarah Lenores and Peter Evangelista, and I think they're on the line now. How are you, Sarah? Hi. And Peter? Uh, very good. How are you? Great. So, Sarah, can you start off by just giving sort of an overview about what the play is about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is going to be a very simplistic overview because there's a lot, we go a lot deeper. Um, right. But it's basically a play um, about two sets of neighbors, so two couples that live next to each other. Me and Peter play the new couple that just moved into this affluent uh, neighborhood in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., um, and we need to change this very ugly fence that is between the two yards um, because we want to have an event 
by the end of the week for a very important uh, work party that uh, my fake husband, Peter, has. <laughs> um, Did you say fake husband? You're a fake, <laughs> fake husband, <laughs> Peter. Yeah, just a fake husband. I've never quite heard it put that way. That's great. So go ahead. Go on the resume. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and so uh, we come to realize that we actually own more land than is is part of our yard, and we have to go and confront our neighbors about that, who are um, an older couple who have been in that neighborhood for for a very long time, and we just got there, um, and then hilarity ensues. <laughs> That's great, and so you are the other couple, and there's an age difference, right, between you guys and the other couple, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a cultural difference, um, age difference, uh, ethnicity difference. There's lots of differences. Right. And I'm pregnant. Uh -huh. So, <laughs> Peter, how do the couples start? This, this very much reminds me of God of Carnage, two couples mm. coming together to talk about a problem. And um, So how do they start out in the play? Are they amicable? Oh uh, yeah, definitely. I think uh, you know you always want to start off on the uh, on a good foot uh, with with the people that you live next to or around, um, and that's definitely how these two couples um, start. Uh, you know, our first meeting is is to get to know each other and feel each other out, and of course we're cordial, um, you know, and courteous to the other to the others' uh, opinions and values and morals and things that get brought up uh, in our first encounter. So. Um, yeah, you know, of course, with our motive of trying to get this party going and uh, change the fence that we believe to be, you know, in between both yards, uh, you know, you want to you want to play nice in the uh, in the garden. So uh -huh. Well, I saw in one of the um, photos online. One of you has a boom box, so hopefully you don't bring the boom box to your meeting with uh, the neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, those are the those are the, the part of the crew that we bring in to uh, to help get our garden up to snuff uh, uh, for the party that we're having. Uh -huh. So I'm curious if either of you will start with Sarah. Have you had a dispute with a neighbor that this reminds you of? You know, not in real life. No, I've 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 lived in apartments. Uh, most of my life growing up, so I never really had anything to really dispute. <laughs> no electric guitar at two in the morning or stomping. Exactly. <laughs> no. How about you, Peter? Um, unfortunately, yes. Uh, just because I come from a neighborhood where the houses are pretty much on top of each other. So it could be like, your garbage can is a little too much on my side of my driveway or sidewalk, you know, and people start to take up property that doesn't necessarily belong to them. Um, so I've had a couple of encounters with neighbors, of course, you know, growing up. Uh, it's just been, you know, silly stuff like that. Never, never to this extreme where it's like, hey, by the way, all this belongs to us according to what we bought. <laughs> so in the couple minutes we have left, can you tell us a little bit about who's directing and how large the ensemble is, is performing Native Gardens at the Majestic Theater? Peter. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, James Warwick is directing, uh, has directed the show and is our director and fearless leader. Um, and the ensemble, we have the three, as mentioned, uh, someone carrying a boombox. We have uh, three non-speaking actors that come on stage that are, uh, you know, important part of the show um, due to the vignettes that happen between the scenes with the principal actors or the two couples. Um, and they tell their own little story of the evolution of how this uh, 
you know, um, little incident or episode is going is unfolding. Um, and Sarah, is is this? You said hilarity ensues. <laughs> is it a comedy intended to be a comedy? It is absolutely intended to be a comedy, um, and I think comedies have inherently a lot of heart to it as well. So, whereas this was written to make you laugh, there is a lot of truth and depth to it. Um, so, y'all are going to have to come see the show to find out. <laughs> We're going to take a break. So, tell us where people can get tickets. Tell it. Remind us where the show is before we take a break, and we'll be back with another conversation with you. But where can people get tickets? Um, if you go to the Majestic Theater's website, there is a phone number you can call to get tickets. And our last show is a matinee on February 12th. Um, and am I missing anything, Peter? But no, the schedule's up there. If uh, if you don't want to come to our final show, you can come where we perform Wednesday to Sunday. There's a Saturday matinee as well. Um, yeah, go to MajesticTheater.com, and there's the uh, number for the box office. And for those of our listeners who said Majestic Theater, I've heard of it, but I haven't been there. Where are they going? Mm. West Springfield. Not far, folks. You can make the 13-minute drive. And when you do, make sure you don't step on any neighbor's property. We're going to be back (laughs) with Jackie Walsh and our playbill right after these messages. Do stay with us. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. If only there were an indoor, climate-controlled farmer's market every day of the year. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, corn, and into the root veggies, and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6.30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market every day of the year. Are you organized, detail-oriented, responsible, fun-loving, and a team player? The Northampton Radio Group is looking for you. We've currently got an opening for a part-time office assistant. The job is right out front, so you have to like people. A knowledge of Microsoft Office is essential, and a sense of humor is a must. Send your resume and cover letter to Office Position, Northampton Radio Group, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Mass., 01060, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer. Everybody needs help sometime. Seven out of 10 Americans are one paycheck away from being homeless. In Massachusetts alone, there are 10 new homeless families a day. 
One in four people will have a mental illness at some point in their life. A brain injury can change a person's life in an instant. ServiceNet helps more than 10,000 people each year. Every day, we help children with behavioral issues. We work with babies suffering from developmental delays. We shelter the homeless. We offer residential programs for people with severe mental illness, developmental disabilities, traumatic brain injuries, and substance addiction. And that's just the beginning of what we do. We are here when you need us. We have five outpatient counseling centers with convenient locations in Hampshire, Franklin, Hamden, and Berkshire counties. At ServiceNet, we believe that everybody has the ability to live a meaningful life, and we're here to help make that happen. For more information, please check our website at servicenet.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with Play Bill with Jackie Walsh. We're talking with uh, Peter Evangelista and Sarah Linares about Native Gardens, which is playing at the Majestic Theater. Right. So we have, yes, Sarah and Peter here. And um, I'm curious. So the play is sort of a, a bit of a face-off between an older um, Georgetown couple and a new, younger Latino new Georgetown couple. I'm wondering how race or culture or stereotyping plays out in the play without giving too much away. So, Peter. Yes. I think um, <clears throat> I think it's, uh, in this case, it's judging a book by its cover or using um, whatever kind of knowledge you have of another ethnicity to kind of shape the way you maybe see them up front or any kind of opinions you might have uh, prior to meeting people, uh, especially in our case, you know, when in our first encounter with, with the older um, affluent couple, um, you know, they're, they bring up certain things that they love about the Latin culture, uh, mm -hmm. specifically the Mexican culture. And that I think just kind of you know, assuming that we are one thing versus mm -hmm. really finding out who we are beforehand, that just kind of informs, you know, stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. So you, you just have that kind of preconceived idea. Right. And Sarah, do you have anything to add to that? Um, well, the wonderful thing about this playwright, Karen Zacharias, is that um, it goes both ways. So um, she she shows us how um, each of us stereotypes the other in various different ways. And um, we learn the hard way that we all end up being... Uh, really good people with the best intentions that just make questionable decisions in the moment. <laughs> right. Um, I am extremely curious about the set. Is it imagined or do we actually have a prissy award-winning garden next to a, a lawn with native plants? With a fence. With a fence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the set designers and the carpenters and everyone did an incredible job with the set. We have a very realistic looking tree. We have these very uh, colorful, big, gorgeous flowers, um, of course, on the uh, Georgetown couple side. <laughs> um, and our yard, uh, me and Peter's yard looks a mess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's very very real looking and makes you think that you're actually in D.C. in the summertime. Wow. Is there, are your homes townhouses? Does it have that sort of look? 
Yes, I think so. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure. Nice. <laughs> I know what a townhouse is. <laughs> so I'm curious, since we have two actors on the show, uh, Peter, I am curious what keeps you coming back to the stage. Like, why does it um, excite you and interest you? Um, I think it's just because it's it's live. It's happening right then and there in the moment. Um, the responses that you might uh, get or feel um, from an audience, uh, they happen as it's happening and you get to go through the story from start to finish every night. That's always been a big draw for me is that when you do a play, um, you know, as soon as the lights go on uh, and you step on stage, that's you for the rest of the show. So you, you have to go through the entire story uh, and live it out. Uh, Whereas in a movie, you know, you you do one clip at a time and they splice it together. And a year later you look at it on screen and have to kind of remember where you were, how you were feeling. So, right. How about you, Sarah? You know, Peter stole a lot of my answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. Uh, it's not the fame and fortune. <laughs> but I think I gotta, I, I really gotta emphasize the um, the live energy of it. Uh, the the fact that we are doing an entire show and we're telling a story to people in real time. Um, you get to see their reactions and their different, sometimes vastly different reactions to the same joke or the same scene every night and every night I'm going to be different. I'm not going to be the same uh, Tanya playing robotically, you know, automatically every, every time you come see the show, it'll always be a little bit, a little bit different. And I think that's what I love about going on the stage is that it's ephemeral. Maybe this (laughs) question is, mm, maybe this question is also for Jackie, who's an actor as well. But I'm wondering when you do comedic stuff and you're in front of a live audience you really want to hear that laughter when you deliver a line. Oh, yeah. Or what happens when you don't? I mean, uh, I'm just curious, Sarah, uh, as an actor, you're waiting apprehensively for those laughs? Yeah. So th- what's funny is that during rehearsal, we also don't really hear the laughs. I mean, you know, James Warwick, our director, is so lovely, and he, of course, is always laughing at what we do. Um, <laughs> but we had no idea what jokes would land in our on our audiences um so if an audience maybe doesn't have the the uproarious reaction that we want we we just have to like in a split second decide to push through and keep going with the story and maybe emphasize another line or another word that we think might you know engage them or, or make the audience laugh Right, and I don't know if this is your experience Sarah but um my experience is the audience ends up laughing more than you expect them to because for one mm-hmm. thing you've forgotten that you might have laughed out a line at the first or second rehearsal but you forget that it's funny and also they find humor in lines that you've never thought were funny is that your exactly. experience oh yeah absolutely yeah 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 there's there's a couple of lines that um ellen has uh, our our wife on the other side <laughs> um that i never thought that people would react to and so now it's kind of built into our show every night that we have to just give a little just give a little weight (laughs) after she says that word (laughs) and peter how about you uh yeah i find that uh uh, i've always found that comedy is serious business so uh in order to Mm -hmm. kind of gauge 
the audience, you just have to go and, and, and play it as straight as possible and, and understand that when the laugh comes, you can you can hold for a second and then continue on your journey as you were doing it and allow the audience to, to live in that moment with you. Um, yeah, I find that the easiest way. But yes, of course, our fearless... Uh, our fearless leader James was was gave us all the encouragement to find those laughing moments because he has a great cackle himself. So it was uh, it was yeah, it was nice to have him in the room and help us and guide us in the direction of the audience. Well, I hope he's in the audience so he can uh, fire up the audience. So one more yeah, time, we have, a, we have a couple of plans. Yeah. Okay. Whoops, um, we have less than a minute left. Tell us again, how do we get tickets and when are the performances? Sarah. Yep. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you go on to the Majestic Theater website, uh, and that theater is in West Springfield. We do performances Wednesday through Sunday. Our last show is February 12th, and there is a phone number on the website that you can call the box office and get tickets. Excellent. So this is Native Gardens. We've been talking to actor Sarah Linares and Peter Evangelista. Sorry, and it's at the Majestic Theater Downtown West Springfield, they always do great, great shows there through February 12th. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It really it sounds great. Thanks it's all about boundaries, you. both ethnic boundaries, racial boundaries, and also geographic land boundaries. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, thank for, you having for having us. us. And once yeah. again, Jackie, thank you for Playbill this week. Yeah, it was great. Everybody else, thank you for joining us. For Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Jess Tyler with your national news for WHMP. As five Memphis police officers attacked Tyree Nichols with their feet, fists, and a baton, others milled around at the scene, even as the 29-year-old cried out in pain and then slumped limply against the side of a car. Just like the attack on George Floyd in Minneapolis nearly three years ago, a simple intervention could have saved a life. Instead, Nichols is dead and five officers are charged with second-degree murder and other crimes. President Joe Biden has informed Congress that he'll end the twin national emergencies for addressing COVID-19 on May 11th, as most of the world has returned closer to normalcy nearly three years after they were first declared. The move to end the national emergency and public health emergency declarations will formally restructure the federal coronavirus response to treat the virus as an endemic threat to public health that can be managed through agencies' normal authorities. The outlook for the global economy is growing slightly brighter as China eases its zero-COVID policies and the world 